Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That, uh, with episode 549 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We will be talking all things AEW and NXT on this podcast, but not only that, we will be providing you with a special NXT Vengeance Day Ultimate Preview. We will break down every single match on that card with predictions, analysis, and much more. Now, we do have a loaded edition of this Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Excuse me, award-winning Getting Over Wrestling Podcast still to come because I am able to use that terminology now, getting over just moments before we taped today's show, found out that we indeed were named the best wrestling podcast for 2023 by the Sports Podcast Awards. I just want to thank everyone for going out and voting and supporting us and providing us with that honor. It's the first award that getting over has won, the first of many, I certainly hope, coming down in the future. Unfortunately, Vintage Chris Vanini is not here to discuss it, so you're going to need to go ahead and wait for episode 551, our uh, WWE episode this coming Tuesday, for us to have that conversation, but we will be extremely excited to discuss our first award with you. But just once again, I want to thank everyone for listening, subscribing, following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, voting in the poll uh, that gave us the opportunity to win this award. It means a lot. Uh, we do the show for you guys. Uh, we're glad you enjoy it. We're glad you pop for it. And just seeing the reaction that we've already gotten, uh, just tweeting this out right before this show uh, started taping today, it means a lot to us. And I'm sure we'll have plenty more to say uh, this coming Tuesday. But that's not really why we're here today. We're here to talk AEW and NXT. We're going to get to all of it. First, you know what I got to do. It wouldn't be the Getting Over a Wrestling Podcast if I did not remind you that this show is all about Defy. So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. I mentioned following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Please do that because we give you episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, a ton of stuff there. It's also where you can send in tweets and DMs for the show that we try our best to read on the air again, all of that on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant reaction shows to Raw, NXT, Dynamite, and SmackDown, you also get exclusive news posts. Generally, those come every Friday. You can get all of it by subscribing, linking up with us. It's basically the price of a Starbucks coffee or a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich per month. All of it on buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. So let's get into today's show. As mentioned, we have a ton to discuss. This week, we are going to start with AEW, and we're going to do NXT over the second half of the show. And that is because, as I already mentioned, we do have an ultimate preview to bring you for Vengeance Day. But we got an absolute ton to discuss. As always, there are timestamps in the episode description. So if you only listen to the show normally because of AEW or NXT, you want to jump around, you can check out the description, find that timestamp, and make that jump. 
But as always, I truly hope you are listening to the entire show. With that said, we're going to kick things off with AEW. I really am enjoying the updated set and graphics that the company is using right now for AEW Dynamite. They're really striking. I do wish they would go back to like the paint splatter, you know, six different rainbow color aesthetic that they used to have. Even if they don't go with the paint splatter, just the multicolor, you know, package and aesthetic that they're using for a that they used to use, I should say, for AEW Dynamite. It was really eye-catching. When I watch Dynamite now, the blue and the red, it's just so WWE. And I'm not saying that it's bad necessarily, but it doesn't separate or differentiate Dynamite in any meaningful way. So if I was them, I'd either go to the multicolor aesthetic that we're talking about from back in the day, or just go with gold, which is the main color in their logo other than white and black. I don't know why they don't focus in on something like that. You have Collision that obviously looks like WCW Nitro. They have the red and the yellow and all that. And then the other show just looks like it's some amalgamation of Raw and SmackDown. I just wish it differentiated itself a little bit better. I will also note that I have a problem with the set, and it's that super annoying, massive advertisement on the stage left screen throughout the entire show. It's just so off-putting where every time they flip a camera angle, they're telling me to buy tickets so that there's a pay-per-view coming up. It's I can't avoid it. I mean, WWE over-promotes. Let's be very clear about that. But they don't stick something on your screen permanently for an entire two-hour broadcast. So let's just hope that AEW perhaps goes a little bit away from that. This week, I think they added some random Hollywood-style spotlights like in different spots throughout the crowd. At least I didn't really notice it that much before. They were immensely distracting, especially because the crowd was so dark due to a lack of attendance where the spotlights they became a bigger part of the presentation than they otherwise should be. So these are elements, and they're trying different things. I would just like them to tone down that and then get rid of that permanent advertisement, which is super, super annoying. Now, regarding storylines building to matches, this is something we've been talking about for the last few weeks. This was AEW's best week in that regard in months. There were 16 matches on the show, uh, three shows, Dynamite, Rampage, and Collision. Six of them had a legitimate storyline build. Two others I'm giving partial credit to, that's basically 50%. Now, look, of course, we're still stuck with the other 50% having no storyline relevance whatsoever, which naturally makes them far less important. When you're dealing with half your matches in a week not mattering to your stories, that is a major issue. But 50% is far better than like the 16% or 30% that we've been dealing with over the last three or four weeks. So step in the right direction with Revolution coming up, I just hope they get more and more ingrained in the storytelling aspect. And it does seem, and we're skipping ahead just a little bit, but based on the booking for next week's Dynamite, it looks like we're going to get a lot of that. And that's a huge positive. So let's actually start with a segment from Collision, as random as it may be. Brian Cage cut some rambling, jealous, promo, angry that people are talking about Hook, saying the FTW Championship wouldn't be relevant without him, Cage. Hook said 12 words, basically, that Cage could get a shot at the title whenever he wants. It was decent enough for a guy his size, Cage's intimidation level, it really dissipates when he speaks. And yes, I know it's strange that we started with this, but you'll see why in a moment. On Collision, Swerve Strickland and Hangman Page announced their dealer's choice opponents. Well, they kind of announced them. Uh, For the other, Swerve picked Toa Leona for Hangman. Hangman chose Rob Van Dam for Swerve, except he didn't technically announce that it was Rob Van Dam. Now, the latter match is exciting because it's Swerve RVD. 
But given the stipulation, the dealer's choice situation, both were kind of horrendous options. You can literally choose whoever you want. And you're picking Toa Leona and 53-year-old RVD. What about Powerhouse Hobbs or Brody King or Malachi Black or John Moxley? Like someone that is going to destroy your opponent and possibly beat them. And if they do that, if they accomplish in beating your opponent, they're giving you an advantage in the number one contendership chase. So why would you not use some common sense and try to get a great opponent instead of Toa Leona, who's never had a singles match in AEW, and again, Rob Van Dam, who's 53 years old. So a little annoyed with the choices, but let's move over to Dynamite, where because of this dealer's choice stipulation, both of these matches had storyline relevance. We'll start with Hangman against Toa. This was evenly wrestled for the most part. Page hit Deadeye, but Leona completely no-sold it and then hit a senton on the apron. Hangman avoided a moonsault outside with Toa landing flat on the floor, but he immediately stood up and then just stood outside waiting 30 seconds for Hangman to like get to the top rope and hit his moonsault. Leona ducked the buckshot lariat and hit a Samoan drop, but Hangman rotated him into a crucifix pinning combination for the one, two, three. Credit to Toa because he delivered a much better match than I expected. And I get that he's a member of Mogul Embassy, but if you're Swerve looking to take out your top competition, surely you're going with someone that you know has a chance to not only beat Paige, but seriously hurt him. The logic gap here was rough for me. All in all though, I will say it was an entertaining match. Then in the main event, we had Swerve against RVD. Samoa Joe was on commentary. Hangman interrupted before the bell, saying the dealer's choice stipulation also allowed him to make it a hardcore match. As Swerve turned around, RVD threw a chair at his head. He later hit the rotating kick, with Swerve draped over the barricade and then rolling thunder. Brian Cage ran in to push RVD off the rope, so then Hook, in a D12 shirt that I have somewhere in the back of my closet, he took him out with a chair. Was Hook even alive when D12 was semi-popular for like a year? Like, I got that shirt, I think, free as part of buying a CD or something like that. I can't imagine someone wearing a D12 shirt in 2024. I digress. Uh, So Swerve did a running stomp with RVD sitting in a steel chair. He may or may not have banged his head off the steel steps. RVD then threw a chair at Swerve's head while he was on the top rope. So Swerve threw himself off the top rope through a table that he set up earlier. Swerve dodged a five-star frog splash with RVD landing on a chair. Then he did a Van Terminator, basically, but with a knee instead of a kick, plus Swerve Stomp for the win. Swerve then did the RVD gesture while RVD flipped him off. This was during the actual finish of the Swerve Stomp. So the match stipulation element, it made RVD a far better and more logical choice in this spot. Though obviously Paige could have, again, gone with like Mox or someone like that. But it was also something never stated in the initial dealer's choice promotion, where we were told that the person got to choose the opponent, not so much the match or anything else like that. So it was kind of stretching the kayfabe aspect of this just a little bit. Despite that, the match was awesome, though it did feel like RVD got too much offense as a 53-year-old against someone who may well be the next AEW champion. I appreciate that AEW uses RVD and That should be frustrating for WWE fans. I think I've said this before because all of these years, like the last decade, WWE could have used him in these random one-off legend spots, put him in the Royal Rumble, done a ton of cool things with him, and they just haven't. So I'm I'm glad that AEW is using him. Swerve once again looked great in the main event segment. It was by far the best match of the night. I went 3.75 stars B plus 
for this. A hangman hit the ring after this, calling Swerve an evil bastard while noting they will likely be tied at number one in the new AEW rankings. He said he would never let Swerve win the AEW title. Swerve laughed, saying Paige can't beat him. They argued about who is better, so Swerve agreed to a third and final match. Literally 10 seconds after Swerve's like, hey, let's do this match. Maybe even less than 10 seconds. The match had a graphic and it was announced for last week. That is way too much suspension of disbelief for me. I'm sorry. Give us 30 seconds, 60, 90. Let us marinate on it just a little bit before announcing it. That's where when you're watching the product, you just roll your eyes about wrestling obviously being fake. You know what I mean? The promo segment was fine. It was repetitive from what both of them have said previously. I have a hard time buying into Hangman's words half the time, and this was one of those times. Now, this is going to wind up being a time limit draw. It'll lead to a triple threat at Revolution. It's the only booking that makes sense. Eventually, they'll have a fourth match. Hangman will win, and that's just how it's going to go. I just assume that one's not going to be happening for a while, the fourth match between them. Now, since Hangman mentioned the rankings, we can go and move on to those because the first version of the updated rankings came out Wednesday after Dynamite, and they gave top fives in four different divisions, men's singles, men's tag team, men's trios, and women's singles. So Swerve and Hangman were obviously one and two for the men's singles. Adam Copeland was already three. That tells me the Cope Opeland is just completely unnecessary for him getting a TNT title match at this point. He's beaten four people. He's already number three. John Moxley and Roderick Strong rounded out the top five. Strong, I have no idea why. Wouldn't you know it? Four of those five are the forthcoming title challengers with Brian Danielson being the only one missing. Pretty clear he's going to be going after Eddie Kingston. Where's Konosuke Takeshka? Where's Powerhouse Hobbs? Chris Jericho? All those guys have just been winning and winning and winning. And yet again, you have Roderick Strong on there. Just doesn't really make a lot of sense. For the women, Deanna Prazo is number one and Mariah May is number five, despite both of them just joining the company and mostly fighting nobodies. The tag team division has John Silver and Alex Reynolds somehow number two. Apparently the ROH wins count for the AEW rankings, which is completely ridiculous. Private Party is somehow three, despite just returning. And I think they have one win since coming back. And I'm not even sure if that win happened in 2024. There's no FTR in the top five because they're number four in trios alongside Daniel Garcia for winning one match. Where are the great AEW tag teams? Like Bullet Club Gold is number one in trios, despite being the ROH six-man champions. So that apparently doesn't preclude them from being in the rankings for an AEW title. The Hardys and Mark Briscoe are also on that list somehow. I remember that they had a match, but I don't remember it being something that would get them in the rankings. Uh, Both of the tag team divisions are pretty messy. What's also interesting is that for the men's singles titles, the champions are listed in order because let's remind you, AEW has four men's singles titles despite no roster split. So the order is world championship, Samoa Joe, the TNT title, Christian Cage, international title, Orange Cassidy, and then continental crown, Eddie Kingston. Now I figured international by this point was ahead of TNT. And really a triple crown should probably be ahead of a TV title as well. But this is what Tony Khan has decided for the prestige order. TNT number two of the men's singles titles, despite Orange fully leveling up the international title, thanks to Shazam Fury of the Gods. So that is our look at the AEW rankings. We are not gonna do this every week, I promise you. But it was the first version that came out and it felt worth uh, taking a look at and pointing out some of the 
inherent problems that already exist with the rankings. Let's move on to what else happened on TV this week. On Dynamite, there was a sit-down interview between Ricky Starks and Big Bill and Darby Allen and Sting. Ricky called back to their cinematic match. Sting pointed out he won. Darby said Ricky only saw Sting as a stepping stone and did not respect him. So Starks went off talking about retiring Sting, saying the person that he has no room left in his life to respect is Darby. Big Bill said they would take their frustrations about being overlooked out on them next week. Sting said he admired Ricky's balls, but respect needs to be earned, and he's not sure whether Bill is a killer or not. Darby added that Ricky tries to blame everyone but himself for his failings, which led to water getting thrown in his grill and then a face-to-face to end the segment. This was actually one of the strongest segments in AEW this week. It's exactly what you would want from an interview of this style, especially given the feud came up somewhat randomly just to presumably get the titles on Sting before his retirement match. I'm intrigued to see what happens to Darby booking-wise after Sting's retirement, and next week should be interesting, at least when it comes to the title match. Also on Dynamite, the Young Bucks stepped out of a stretch limo angry at a PA for calling them by their short names while trying to hand them a show rundown. They fined them $500. The Bucks later interrupted a Darby solo interview before it started, asking why he's letting a 65-year-old blood-sucking leech named Sting take money out of his pockets. Allen basically just walked away. I'm not sure why Darby was doing a second interview in the same episode when nothing new happened. On Collision, Daniel Garcia and FTR fought House of Black in an Escape the Cage elimination match. I saw a bunch of fervor online that, hey, we never heard that this was gonna be an Escape the Cage match. It was just gonna be elimination. They changed the rules. I don't know whether they did or not. Maybe it was always planned to be that way. I don't remember it being listed as Escape the Cage. And I think a lot of people were disappointed with that because it's one of the biggest criticisms about WWE cage matches is the escape element. People want the traditional cage match from all the way back in the day where it's pin or submission. It has to happen in the squared circle. And that's it. I didn't mind the Escape the Cage stipulation. And I also thought it added some interesting strategy to the match. The problem was, They didn't actually use the strategy in the match. So let's go ahead and talk about that. Garcia was shown bloodied and injured backstage, laying on top of a guardrail. Mark Briscoe later offered to take his place if FTR needed. House of Black attacked Mark during his entrance, throwing him off the stage through a table. So everyone had an extended brawl at ringside with weapons and Garcia. He eventually made the heroic return, all bandaged up. Cash Wheeler jumped off the top of the cage to splash the other five guys. There was an escape possibility for Garcia, but he decided to return to fight. FTR hit Shatter Machine and Cash did a curb stomp reverse on Buddy Matthews. Dax Harwood escaped first and Brody King projected his body into the door, which took out Dax while he was already out and also gave him the escape of the cage, making it basically two on two. Strategically, and this is where I get into that, wouldn't it have made sense for King to see Dax leave and then remain in the ring with House of Black and just beat the ever-loving shit out of Cash and Garcia, and then all three of them could have walked out together. Or two of them walk out, and, you know, Cash or whoever stops one of them, and then it's all of a sudden two-on-one advantage for the baby faces. Like, that would have been a lot more interesting than just leaving, and now it's two-on-two. That was frustrating. Anyway, FTR hit their combo high-risk move on Malachi Black. Buddy followed with a flying meteora. Buddy and Cash fought off the side of a cage, with Wheeler getting knocked off through a table that just happened to be there. Buddy was about to head back into the ring for the advantage that I just mentioned. But Garcia threw Black into him and Matthews flew backwards, just like those Koopas and like Mario Brothers, when you have like the chain link stage or whatever that is, into a table. 
Uh, and that table also just happened to be there. Julia Hart appeared outside the ring and misted Garcia in the face. So Malachi Black, you walk out of the ring, you win, right? No, he decided to take his sweet time and he got goaded back into the squared circle by Garcia, who demanded to be finished by him. Garcia ducked Black Mass and ate a pile driver into a chair. Uh, that was Malachi who did that. Briscoe then slammed a door onto Black's head and Garcia climbed over the top with the four faces all celebrating the victory. So let me get the criticisms out of the way first. Black looked like an absolute idiot, as did House of Black not using the numbers advantage on not one occasion, but two different occasions. Other than that, this was a total banger. I went four stars A minus. It seemed for a while like I was gonna go way higher. I loved the action outside the ring to start, loved that they continued it inside. I already stated my issues with the logic gap. If you had gotten over some of that and actually added strategy to this match, you're talking about a real high level piece of work. They didn't really do that. They stuck with the escape and the goal is to escape and it doesn't really matter what that means for the rest of your team. And that was for me just a bit frustrating. On Rampage, we had John Moxley defeat Lee Moriarty via referee stoppage after a bulldog choke over his back. Moriarty kicked out of two big offensive sequences prior to this. The match went 13 minutes, despite the fact that Lee hasn't won an AEW singles match on TV in 16 months. And in fact, this was the longest singles match of his AEW career, despite it coming against the most badass guy who is the top star in the company. He and Shane Taylor attacked after the bell because that's what always happens. Yet none of the four member BCC was there to help Mox. On Collision, Blackpool Combat Club fought Shane Taylor promotions. This opened the show. Claudio Castagnoli teamed with Mox for this. They had a heart attack on Taylor with Mox holding onto a bulldog choke despite being planted on the canvas. He kept it locked in and he got the BCC victory. So the random match with Taylor led to a three-match series that Mox obviously swept. On Collision, Eddie Kingston fought Willie Mack in a non-title proving ground match, which sounded like an eliminator, but with a different name. Eddie on Rampage was unconcerned with Brian Danielson's lack of respect, saying the feeling was mutual. Then he gave Willie this match randomly out of nowhere because they both were independent wrestlers at one point. Mack nearly got a three count shortly after the bell. Kingston ultimately won with the spinning back fist and got disrespected by Danielson, who walked past him as he exited up the ramp. So Kingston decided to call an audible. He joined commentary for Brian's match. This was obviously nothing, the Eddie and Willie match. On collision, after that, Brian Danielson fought uh, Yuji Nagata. Danielson reached the ropes on an armbar before they traded a ton of big kicks. Brian ultimately won with a Bazaiku knee in 15 minutes. They shook hands after the bell. Kingston called Danielson fake. After Brian bowed to the crowd on the stage, he looked over at Eddie and flipped him off. This is like the fifth time in the entire week of AEW that they used middle fingers. Like, I'm serious, it was him, RVD, it was like uh, Jeff Hardy did it. It was like three or four different people, maybe not five, but three or four different people did it. Now, I was not purposefully short on this breakdown. The matches didn't really have a lot of highlight moments worth running through individually. It was the second best match over the weekend for AEW, 3.75 stars B+. On Dynamite, Mox fought Jeff Hardy, as mentioned. Mox put a pen in Jeff's earlobe gauge and twisted it akin to what Randy Orton did a few years ago. Mox got thrown into the lap of some CMLL luchadors who will be wrestling on Rampage coming up. So that started a little something between all of them. Otherwise, he dominated the match. Hardy hit Whisper in the wind late. Mox countered Twist of Fate into an RKO. Uh, Jeff countered Paradigm Shift into a Russian leg sweep and trap cover for the one, two, three. Except the referee didn't call it. It's like the third or fourth time that's happened in two weeks. 
Hardy then hit Twist of Fate, but Mox avoided Swanton Bomb and won via stoppage with the rear naked choke. Jeff clapped and Mox went for a handshake after the bell. As mentioned, Hardy gave him the up yours gesture and then flicked them off, but he did the daredevil guns instead of middle fingers. Really nice opening match. Jeff has looked pretty good despite his age, despite his injuries. He's looked pretty good over the last few weeks. And it's been a slow burn heel turn, I guess as much of a slow burn as something this blatantly obvious can be. It feels like Mox is being built for something. Either that or he's just getting matches for star power reasons. Both are fine, but it would be nice if he got some storytelling beyond good wrestling match. After the bell, the CMLL Luchadors attacked Mox with a random assortment of wrestlers saving him because for the second straight post-match attack, his four-person faction was not there to help him. That's not a storyline. I just literally think it's bad booking. But I could be wrong. Maybe it turns into something. The CMLL stuff, it's basic, but there is a planned match with Danielson for Rampage, and it looks like they're going to do a six-man on Dynamite next week. Both of those should be immensely entertaining. On Rampage, El Hijo Del Vikingo fought Commander, Kip Sabian, and The Butcher in a freshly squeezed number one contendership fatal four-way match uh, to get a chance at the international championship. There was a horrible spot where Vikingo tried to superplex Commander off of Butcher's shoulders, only for Sabian to crouch behind Butcher in an effort to trip them. And I was trying to think when he's doing this, okay, what's the benefit, right? So let's say he trips Butcher. He falls on his back. But in order to do the superplex, he would have to fall on his back. So instead of it benefiting anybody, it actually did trip him up. And the luchadors fell straight down onto each other. Super dangerous, super unnecessary. Commander jumped off Alex Abrahanta's back for a Canadian destroyer on Sabian. Is he with him now, by the way? Because I know he did some work with the Lucha Bros, but I didn't think that meant he was now his manager as well. But I guess he is. Anyway, uh, the referee counted a fall without Commander's shoulders even on the canvas. Then he botched a counter pinning combination with Sabian. This was just truly horrendous, but um, Commander did win. On collision, the international title was on the line, Orange against Commander. Roderick Strong reminded Commander backstage that he would challenge for the title at Revolution, offered to help him beat Orange, forcing him to shake hands. Commander had a springboard Frankensteiner, and soon after appealed to stun himself, kind of, landing on his head during a hurricanrana. Strong distracted the referee as Kingdom held Cassidy's arms outside, but when Commander hit a tightrope move, Orange escaped, the heels took the brunt of it, and then an orange punch ended it back inside afterward. Fine for what it was, the number one contendership participants were ridiculous. Commander loses everything. The fact that he even had this match was silly, but he did win his way in, so it did have some semblance of storyline. On Dynamite, Commander fought Wardlow because let's just do more Commander this week. This was a nice David versus Goliath match with Commander hitting a few solid moves, including a nearly perfect Phoenix Splash. I say nearly perfect because his knee landed on Wardlow's neck and throat. And Rick Knox... Didn't give a shit. He counted and then let the match continue. Didn't check on Wardlow. He was grabbing his throat, clearly in pain. Yeah, just keep wrestling. Uh, he did come back. Wardlow did it with a rotating power slam and a botched power bomb. His right knee gave out while planting for the win. This was a definite non-contact injury, and it looked to be serious at that. Honestly, the fact that he didn't straight drop Commander, that was fortunate. I would have crumpled like a paper bag probably would have cried if something like that happened to me. Now, it did not look good in the moment. Wardlow was positive on Twitter after the show. He said he's fine. I'm just not completely sure I believe him, given the way the knee buckled and how that compares to so many athletes that I've seen tear ligaments and meniscus and all of that over the years. Not to mention, 
some personal experience with the knee injuries myself. But again, I wish him the best. I hope I'm wrong. I think he has a torn something in his knee and is going to be out for at least a few months. But again, I hope I'm wrong. Wardlow left the ring, even though he was supposed to play out the segment as Undisputed Kingdom went to hurt Commander Moore, Orange, Tremperetta, and Rocky Romero saved. The heels dipped out. This was typical AEW post-match stuff. On Rampage, Konosuke Takeshka beat Christopher Daniels easily with a cradle tombstone pile driver and a pump knee. I didn't mind Takeshka getting a squash match over a legend because they're just trying to find momentum for him that he lost after he beat Kenny Omega twice and then they just stopped putting him on TV. Don Callis cut a promo about taking everything Chris Jericho has with Takeshka prepared to end his career. Kyle Fletcher interrupted Callis saying he deserved a match before Takeshka. It was nothing. So on Dynamite, we got Jericho against Fletcher. There was a far too complicated move out of the corner, which looked like it was going to be a brain buster, but maybe it was supposed to be one on the top turnbuckle. Commentary did call it that way. I just didn't really look that good. I'm not sure if it was a nice cover for something that happened or it was the reality of the move. Either way, just didn't look great. Jericho basically battled interference outside all match. He caught Fletcher flying outside with Judas Effect, threw Powerhouse Hobbs into the steel steps, and then hit a flying Judas Effect off the top rope on Fletcher for the win. Takeshi came out after a taunt from the stage. This completely over-delivered. Tony Schiavone said after the bell that Jericho earned this win, and that was like the perfect way to describe it. The guy busted his ass in this match and helped make Fletcher look great, even in defeat. The flying Judas effect was particularly strong and had a really nice way to end the match with that type of move. And look, it's always silly when a babyface can overcome the odds like that. It's even sillier that Takeshka wasn't ringside the entire time. Why didn't he join them? Why did he just walk out on stage afterward? They could have had an even greater numbers advantage and most likely would have beaten Jericho if Takeshka was also ringside, in addition to Hobbs, in addition to Callis, and of course, Fletcher being in the match. Closing some of these logic gaps, that would go a long way to making AEW better. On Dynamite, the Bang Bang Scissor Gang came out clowning just like, you know, they do. They delivered all their catchphrases and chants. There was no freestyle, but they did the rest. They did the Dudleys get the blank. They did two words for you. Then they scissored with the guns in the ring. And I'm not exaggerating. That was literally the entire segment. There was no point to it whatsoever. No storyline, no challenge, no feud, no new rivalry, nothing that developed their friendship or an agreement between them, not two sides coming together. It was just six dudes entering the ring, doing their catchphrases and leaving. I was kind of flabbergasted at its lack of purpose. Zero point zero. I mean, there are things I hate more from this week, but nothing that made less sense than that segment. On Collision, Mariah May defeated Lady Frost with May Day. Before this, Tony Storm said she couldn't watch the match because she was not welcome in whatever Podunk Town Collision was held in. On Dynamite, Deanna Perrazzo got a promo package talking about the tattoo she shares with Tony and how it symbolizes their journey to becoming the best in the world. She asked Storm what that means to her and... I guess us, the viewer, are now waiting that answer from Tony. Perrazzo then fought Taya Valkyrie later in the show with Tony on commentary. Perrazzo won with some inventive shoulder-based finisher where both arms were bent backwards while Valkyrie was on the ground. Uh, cameras missed the tap out because they had to put the camera on Storm and do the black and white gimmick. Yet, they actually botched the color change when they did that. This is the same shitty women's booking as usual. The only difference being that Perrazzo is new and Storm is over in her gimmick. That's really the only difference between this and everything else that we've seen previously. On Rampage, Ruby Soho fought Anna Jay. Angela Parker told Anna he can't join her ringside, despite them being family, asking her to confirm that she didn't make Harley Cameron kiss him. 
two weeks ago. Anna delivered an awful slap to the face, saying she was in the match to defend him against his girlfriend, and now it's all about her winning for herself. Completely nonsensical. Anna kicked out of Destination Unknown, countered No Future with a neckbreaker off the ropes, and then tapped out Ruby with Queenslayer in maybe one second. As soon as she locked it in, she tapped out. This match should have been far better. It was super rough. And when Ruby's the one being pushed in storyline, why is Anna winning? I know it was her hometown. I guess that was the reason, but like, it didn't really make much sense. On Collision, Serena Deeb ran through Rob and Renegade in three minutes with the Serenity Lock. This was her return match. Her gimmick is Deeb's Dojo. She now carries a flag to the ring. Deeb said she's back to elevate the women's division and become champion as the most elite wrestler in AEW. Yeah, all your sports teams, they're all failures. I'm kidding. This was actually a totally fine promo from her. It's good to see her back. And lastly, on Dynamite, AEW announced a big announcement, quote unquote, from Tony Khan next week on the show. It's been a while since we've had one of these. I think the last one came in November, the announcement announcements. Uh, I presume it's going to be that a Boston show is coming up, which is going to begin speculation for Mercedes Monet to debut on that show, likely in March, something to that effect. I see some people speculating it's a TV deal. That's not something you announce in this manner. And it's likely something that would leak beforehand anyway. So the announcement's coming next week. That is my prediction. It's to announce a show, maybe a special name for the show, something with a statement or something where then Mercedes Monet will debut in March. That does seem to be completely locked up. It did seem like this Wednesday's Dynamite was like a stage setter show to build to next week's Dynamite, given that's going to have the announcement, Swerve Hangman, the tag team title match, and more. Revolution is still a month away, so it's not a surprise that things have slowed down a little bit. But as I said the last few weeks, it's not necessarily an excuse to not provide storylines for half of your matches. That's an area where AEW can just continue to make a huge improvement. So with that said, an AEW now completed from a breakdown standpoint, let's go ahead and move over to NXT. We're going to discuss everything that happened on the show that does not directly have to do with NXT Vengeance Day. And then we're going to follow up with your NXT Vengeance Day ultimate preview. So still plenty of show left right here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Ridge Holland fought Lexus King. Holland backstage was denied a one-on-three handicap match against Gallus. King walked in handing Ava a gift basket full of his stuff, assuming they had a meeting scheduled, which caught her by surprise, so she made the match between them. Holland was dominating King when Gallus ran down to attack. Ridge took out each of them on his own. That allowed the referee to avoid calling a disqualification, but Lexus caught him coming back in with a draping version of the crown, the straitjacket swinging neckbreaker for the win. Gallus then wrapped the chair around Ridge's knee and slammed it. Now, this was exactly what it needed to be. That said, the match was really rough. I mean, the work was not good by either guy, and it just struggled to pick up any momentum whatsoever. King can't be losing every week. The Holland storyline with Gallus kept going. That's why it made sense for them to do it this way. It makes sense for Ridge to probably fight them one-on-one in consecutive weeks, but I could also see them possibly doing a gauntlet match where he has to beat all three of them in succession. Not sure I would buy Ridge being strong enough to sweep a gauntlet, so hopefully if they do that, it ends with like Joe Coffey beating him, and then they end up having to fight one-on-one. Andre Chase and the Chase U guys were all wearing black for a funeral. They were sad. They'd be saying goodbye to Chase U for the last time. In the ring, Chase took blame and shared his sadness. Duke Hudson talked about legitimately changing because of Chase U and threatening or getting help from some students for a remembrance video. They used Tell Me a Lie as the soundtrack, which was obviously amazing. Chase said this was a teachable moment, but it's now goodbye. JC Jane and Thea Hale suddenly came out saying, men talk, 
women get things done. JC admitted she was toxic in the past and an odd fit with Chase U, but she found herself making friends and changing as a person. She said it was not goodbye for Chase U because she created a 2024 Ladies of Chase U calendar. 12 women came out, I guess, maybe it was 10 women came out, uh, dancing as the calendar cover with JC and Thea on it appeared on the Titantron. Jane said the projected sales will not only wipe out their debt, but make them profitable once it goes on sale at Vengeance Day. Chase hugged her, officially welcomed her, and promised to never forget it as everyone celebrated. They continued to party backstage when King showed up wanting a signed calendar. Riley Osborne stood up to him, leading to a forthcoming match. Then Thea Hale accidentally admitted that she liked him. This was so campy, and it's exactly what professional wrestling is all about. If you didn't like this, you don't like fun. I'm not sure how I didn't realize this entire time that it was going to be a calendar. It seems so completely obvious when you think about it. I guess I was just like, it was all the iPhone stuff and the fact that it's 2024 and it had me thinking about OnlyFans. But as we said the entire time we were talking about OnlyFans, it was unlikely WWE would do an angle that racy. The calendar just makes so much more sense. And it feels like almost this whole thing has been an extended episode of Saved by the Bell. Like that is what comes into my head when you talk about like creating a calendar to raise $200,000 and save the school. It's like straight out of Saved by the Bell, Jesse Spano coming up with the idea, you know, and just the whole thing working out. So it popped me as a 90s kid, right, as someone who like grew up with Saved by the Bell and all that. And it just seems to be exactly what they're doing. Again, the calendar makes so much sense. Now we have Chase U 2.0, which is going to be interesting to follow. I kind of wonder if they do a play on it, like JCU, and maybe they have JC teach a class as part of the new curriculum, something like that. I also just enjoyed how the two men's storylines kind of worked their way through this, and I found that to be pretty interesting. So Chase U, the ladies of Chase U calendar, two thumbs up. They landed the plane, <laughs> as we would say, if we were talking about Cody Rhodes and Roman Reigns. Uh, Fallon Henley fought Ariana Grace. Ariana was giving Ren Sinclair advice on how to fit in when Fallon came up mocking Grace behind her back, issuing a challenge. Uh, Brooks Jensen reminisced with Henley while she was preparing for her match, but she cut him off so they could go to the ring, meaning her and Sinclair, uh, leaving him depressed. They had a solid match with Henley appropriately dominating the offense until Jakara Jackson distracted the referee, allowing Lash Legend to boot Henley in the chest with Grace draping her arms over her for the one, two, three. Nice for Ariana to pick up a win. The Fallon-Ren feud will continue, obviously, against the Metaphor Girls. Fallon keeps impressing me more and more with each passing week. Uh, we had a Heritage Cup match. Noam Dar defending against uh, Von Wagner, I guess putting it on the line against Von Wagner. Mr. Stone's kids were sitting in the front row wearing suits, which was pretty cute. Wagner did some mat wrestling early with an arm drag. He beat on Dar well after the round one bell. He attacked Oro Mensa in the ring at the start of round two. That allowed Dar to catch him blind with Nova Roller for the first fall. Henley and Sinclair attacked the metaphor women at the end of round three as Dar refused to release a knee lock. Dar then caught Wagner with a jackknife cover to win 2-0 in round four. Dar taunted Stone's kids after the bell, so Vaughn cleared the announce table and powerbombed Mensa through it. The fans loved it. Vaughn losing matches and then powerbombing people through the table. It's repetitive. It's kind of stupid. You know, he got swept here. Why are you letting him get swept by Noam Dar when he's a much bigger guy? 
Maybe he's just an NXT low carder and that's his career and everyone's okay with that. And I guess that's what's going to be happening with him. And lastly here, Electro Lopez fought Lola Vice. Lopez hit a twisting Uranagi, but Vice countered a spinebuster attempt, hitting a spinning hook kick for the win. Thought it would be longer, just given their partnership and the short-term feud they were doing, but it was decent work overall. Really, the goal was just for Vice to go over so Lopez could move on to SmackDown with Legado del Fantasma. Good to see Lola break out an MMA move. It's a pretty decent finisher for her. I would be okay if she used that going forward. So that was everything that happened on NXT. That allows us to transition to our NXT Vengeance Day Ultimate Preview. Interestingly, there are gonna be six matches on this card, which is pretty damn large for an NXT event, especially because we have one wrestler going twice on the show. Plenty to talk about. Let's go ahead and break it down. We'll start D'Angelo Family against Out the Mud in a mixed six-person tag team match. D'Angelo Family got a video package where they looked cooler, smoother, and more serious than usual. They said out the mud is over their heads and they would find out why the streets belong to the D'Angelo family. I was confused why they were cutting a promo on OTM given they beat him clean for the titles on NXT just two weeks ago, but apparently this match was already booked. I missed it. I did not see that having happened. Somehow just went over my head. OTM later commiserated outside some like tagged up shack with Jada Parker saying she's been overlooked her whole life and the guys saying people don't like different. They promised to disrupt NXT and not play others games anymore, but play their own. OTM just kind of comes across as so freaking real. It's like, it's really hitting for me as a faction, as a group, even though they're all pretty green, this is definitely a stable that could grow together and find success in nine to 12 months. They have undoubtedly a high ceiling across the board. Now, normally in a match like this, where you have someone like Adriana Rizzo, who can easily take the fall, I would go with the heels winning. The problem is D'Angelo family needs to move away from OTM because they're going to have new number one contenders for their titles coming up pretty damn soon. And therefore, I don't think it makes a lot of sense for Out the Mud to get the win. So I'm going to predict the D'Angelo family. But if this goes the other direction, I honestly would not be that surprised. Uh, Dijak was taking film notes in his dungeon or whatever when Joe Gacy entered uninvited and took a seat. Dijak called him unhinged. Gacy said nothing can keep him down and then hit play on Dijak's recorder, proving he had already been in his lair without him. Then they brawled later, continuing that fight through the Chase U segment and even later brawling on top of a trailer outside the WWE Performance Center with a dumpster below them. Gacy got kicked and took like a, a Hollywood stuntman dive into the dumpster after being kicked. Later outside the dumpster, literally on the floor outside the dumpster, Ava admonished Dijak for beating the shit out of Gacy, so Dijak demanded a no disqualification match at Vengeance Day. Ava was in the process of denying him, but Gacy like pulled himself up to the top of the dumpster, like the ledge, peeked over, he had garbage all over him, he was smiling, and he said he wanted the match, and then he fell back inside. This was probably the best usage of the Dijak venue so far, and the fighting was intense. Plus the dumpster segment with Ava, it was legitimate fun. It's the best Gacy has been character-wise in his entire NXT run, at least to this point. We are still lacking a more specific reason that Gacy has a problem with Dijak, and now that they have a problem with each other, it's just a little bit too thin on storyline, but the build has been fun. The Gacy character is starting to get over, and Dijak is working really well bouncing off of him. So we have now Dijak against Joe Gacy in a no disqualification match. Like I said, the Gacy character is starting to work, but it also does not need to win in order to be intriguing. In fact, you could argue losing would do even more for him than winning would. Then you have Dijak, who has lost a number of major feuds over the last few months, and he badly needs a win in something significant. While Gacy is not at the top of his game as a character right now, a no DQ match on a premium live event, it's a pretty big spot. 
And this should be a no-brainer booking with DiJack coming out on top and moving onto something bigger, maybe something better as well. North American Championship will be defended. Oba Femi against Dragon Lee. Femi randomly attacked LWO after the bell of the semifinal of the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic with Dragon running in for the save. He got a little offense, but Oba straight up swatted him out of midair and he stood tall in the segment. Now this has the least to discuss out of anything on the card because the build has been so basic. It would make no sense to crown Femi and have Lee take the title right back off of him, especially since Dragon is already on SmackDown. Presumably, they're going to work in some type of excused loss. Maybe Dragon slips trying a high-risk move. Oba swats him out of the air again, hits his finisher, and then wins the match. That's the way I think this is going to go. Oba Femi retains the North American Championship. Let's move to the Women's Championship. Lyra Valkyria defending against Roxanne Perez. Tatum Paxley was talking to a picture of her and Lyra backstage when Valkyria popped in after ignoring her messages all week. She admonished Tatum for putting Roxy through a table, saying that's not what she told her to do. Paxley explained the misunderstanding, saying she just wanted to ensure Valkyria was champion forever. This led into a match between Tatum and Roxy that actually started during a picture-in-picture commercial break. Perez won an okay match with Pop Rocks. She also hit a really nice Tope Suicida in the final sequence. Paxley attacked Perez after the bell, but Roxy got up on her and Lyra pulled her off for a face-to-face. Tatum then just seemed happy that Lyra got her back and defended her from Roxy. Now, it seems obvious that Paxley will ultimately factor into this title match. That's to be expected. Considering possible outcomes, Paxley simply costing Perez doesn't make much sense because Roxy already has the head-to-head win over her. So if you're going to do that, you have Tatum cost Roxy the match, then Perez beats Paxley on NXT TV. You basically do it that way. Instead, they'd be doing it the other way. So for me, I don't see that being the case. So either... Lyra wins relatively clean, or we get a title change in this spot with either Paxley costing Valkyria, Perez winning in a less clean fashion than usual, or maybe our combination of the two. And that's actually what I'm going to go with here. Even though I've been assuming a retention throughout this entire build for the last few weeks, I'm actually going to change course here and predict that Roxanne Perez regains the NXT Women's Championship. And there's three main reasons for that. The first Perez is a stronger A-side for the women's title match at Stand and Deliver. The second, Valkyria can move right into a program with Paxley and then eventually go back after the women's title. And the third is Roxy might be able to pull off like a tweener move here, maybe even creating a scenario where Lyra gets her rematch on that show. So again, I'm going with Roxanne Perez. My confidence level isn't so high. Like if we were doing it out of 10, I'd probably give you like a 6.5 on the confidence scale for the prediction. But just looking at the way the booking has gone to this point, that seems to make the most sense. We have two more matches left here for NXT Vengeance Day. First will be the finals of the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. Before we talk about the finals, we've got to talk about the second semifinal match. That happened Tuesday on NXT. Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams fought LWO. This opened the show. Joaquin Wilde again showed out with a springboard-seated senton, followed by a torneo from Cruz del Toro. Trick hit a double bookend. LWO came back with stereo coast-to-coast on Mello. Hayes then countered a wild springboard with a mid-air codebreaker as Williams drilled him with the pump knee finisher for the win. Yet another banger in this tournament, and obviously the right winners to create a star-studded final. This tournament has been excellent, and LWO is a significant reason why that's the case. 
Now that they've wrapped up this run, they really need to get featured spots on SmackDown going forward. There were not any problematic elements between Trick and Mello in this match. Therefore, the story did not advance inside the squared circle, but it did in other segments. This got 3.75 stars B+, and it was the match of the night in NXT. So again, we move to the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic Final. Now it's Trick and Mello against Baron Corbin and Braun Breaker, unofficially named the Wolf Dogs. Corbin backstage was annoyed Breaker didn't tell him about his Royal Rumble entry. He accidentally called them the Wolf Dogs, which Braun pointed out he's now using, saying it's now a thing, it's their name, all that type of stuff. Corbin said they both owe Hayes a beatdown and should be able to snuff out Williams' momentum. Braun wanted to focus on winning the Classic and the tag team titles as the Wolf Dogs. Corbin briefly walked away, just mostly because of the name, because he hates it, but then he came back for a fist pump. I keep telling you this, this team just hits so freaking well. It's the best thing Corbin has done in a long, long time. And Breaker continues to show so much personality here, now in almost a tweener role after having already been a white meat baby face and being a full-fledged heel. It just works. The Wolf Dogs, they also attack Trick during the main event segment with Mello making the save. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But first, we're going to break down this tag team match before we move to the NXT title match. Again, Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic Final. Really, either team could win, and it would make sense in kayfabe. Trick and Mello could take the Dusty Cup early during Vengeance Day, only to come apart at the seams later. We've seen similar booking like that in the past. The more likely scenario is that Trick makes a mistake, or he's in the wrong place, he costs their team the trophy. That leads to Mello turning, or again, distracting and interrupting in the main event of the show, and that leading to a break apart. Really, the Wolf Dogs should be the winners. They have a terrific presence together as a team. They can win the tag team titles on TV, take those into stand and deliver on WrestleMania weekend. I've said that many times, that is what I want to happen. I guess the other option is that the Wolf Dogs win the tournament, lose the ensuing title match, and then end up fighting one-on-one at stand and deliver. Maybe Corbin gets a win and Breaker goes to the main roster. That would work as well. It's just that the Wolf Dogs are hitting so well right now. I really want them to stay together semi-long-term. With Braun coming up to the main roster likely in a few months, it feels like an improbability. But again, it's one of those things that you just wish will happen. I'm going to go with the Wolf Dogs, Braun Breaker, and Baron Corbin winning the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. Something happens where Trick or Mello cost the other one the match, and that plays into the main event of the show, which is the NXT Championship, Ilya Dragunov against Trick Williams. So backstage after the tag team match, the semifinal, Trick remarked that he was surprised seeing Mello at the Royal Rumble. Mello remarked that he was surprised seeing Trick at SmackDown last Friday. Trick said he was there, just wanted to have Mello's back, and Mello repeated he's only looking out for him after what Ilya did to Corbin. Hayes promised that Williams would realize during his face-to-face with Dragunov that everything he's been saying is true and that he's actually had his back from the beginning. This just continued to hit. Both guys are coming from legitimate points of view. And while we're being led to believe Mello will ultimately turn on Trick, as I mentioned just a moment ago, this created intrigue to build into the main event of NXT, the TV show, and the second part of their storyline, which is going to unfold during the NXT title match at Vengeance Day. So Dragunov and Williams, they met in the main event segment. Ilya said Trick was the hottest WWE superstar. He offered a handshake. Williams denied him. And Dragunov said not to let Hayes get in his head because their relationship to this point has been built on respect, meaning Ilya's and Trick's. 
Trick said Ilya has been playing him the whole time and pushed the match back, knowing that Williams would be double booked. Dragunov said Williams took the Vengeance Day challenge of his own volition, knowing he likely would have another match and that he did play mind games with Corbin, but he has not done that with Williams. Ilya said Trick should be more concerned with Mello, who needs him for glory, while Williams should just be focused on himself. Trick promised to win the Dusty Cup and the NXT title in the same night. Ilya said their rivalry is establishing him more than Mello ever could or ever has. He promised to break Trick and destroy him piece by piece on Sunday. Williams said he's no longer trying to prove himself. He knows his capability and his destiny. This time, Trick is the one who extended the hand at the end of the segment. They shook. Ilya pulled him in close for the hug, whispered something in his ear, clearly playing the mind games just like Mello said he would. The wolf dogs randomly attacked both of them from behind with Mello saving. Trick then saved Mello from a power slam and they took the heels out of the ring together. As Hayes focused on the wolf dogs outside, staring them down, Williams like turned and he and Dragunov went face to face again. And the final camera shot for the go home vengeance day was the face to face between those two with Mello watching them side eye kind of from the corner. So real strong stuff overall here. It was a little bit clunky in parts, tad repetitive as well. Trick was clearly influenced by his conversation with Mello to be distrusting of Ilya. Yet even as Ilya denied the mind games on a couple occasions, he ultimately proved Mello right by trying to get in Trick's head at the conclusion of the segment. Then you had Hayes make a good faith save and be concentrating fully on the war dogs or the wolf dogs only for Williams to leave him hanging a bit he turned around, he went right back after Dragunov. We've been saying this for a couple of weeks. Maybe Mello did attack Trick. Maybe he did not. And they leave that part of the storyline hanging. But it's possible Mello did the attack, which is obviously a betrayal, only to think better of it and try to make everything work with Trick. Except, despite Hayes' best efforts, Williams won't listen to him. And that's despite Mello being more experienced and legitimately trying to point him in the right direction this entire time. And it could be that which leads to Mello ultimately turning on Trick for good, as opposed to his initial jealousy. As I've said, and I'll repeat this ad nauseum, I don't want a heel turn. I want them staying together. When Mello does go up to the main roster, I want Trick right alongside him. If Mello goes up first before Trick, and then Trick eventually follows him, I want Trick to rejoin Mello and them to be partners and teammates and friends and do their thing on SmackDown or Raw because it works and it's great. And it's not something that should be lost just for the sake of an NXT storyline to give Mello a reason to go to the main roster. But maybe that's what's going to happen. And maybe they can still rekindle it later down the line. This has been a super intricate storyline with a ton of different elements all set to converge at Vengeance Day. And really, this match could go either way. Dragunov certainly could drop the title and move up to the main roster. There were rumors of him doing that months ago. Right now, Gunther needs an opponent for WrestleMania, and that would be a quick turn. But I promise you, you put Gunther, Ilya Dragunov, three, I guess technically it would be one since the other two were Walter. But nevertheless, if you put that match on a WrestleMania card, it's still in the show. It might be match of the entire weekend. Five stars, you can say whatever accolades uh, you want to throw on it. But I don't think Dragunov is moving up. At least that's my guess. Williams could certainly lose. He could move into a program with Hayes. That could end it stand and deliver with Trick winning and Mello getting called up. Between those two potential outcomes, the latter is just far more likely. So my guess is that we're going to get an NXT TakeOver Chicago style turn with Mello trying to help Trick win, consoling Williams after a loss. Maybe Trick pushes him. They walk up the ramp together eventually like they seem to make good and they walk up the ramp 
only for once they get there, the you know copyright graphic pops on screen. Mello takes Trick, runs him into the stage, throws him off the stage, does something like that, beats him down. And that's the way NXT uh, Vengeance Day ends. It's been a long time since we've had something major like that go down in NXT. Those were the types of heel turns that you could count on with Paul Levesque, Triple H running the book. You obviously had it with Tegan Ox and Dakota Kai. You had it with Tommaso Ciampa and uh, Johnny Gargano. There were other situations in which that occurred. The stage is set for it here, and it really does feel like it's going to transpire this Sunday night. So that is your ultimate preview for NXT Vengeance Day, and that leads us to our pre-show expectation grade. I'm gonna go ahead and give a quick overview of the card and then tell you what I think the final grade will ultimately be Sunday night. So I have no doubt that the Corbin Breaker Trick Mellow match is gonna bang. And I'm not saying it's gonna be match of the night, but if it gets the time and they don't rush it and they maybe let Mellow do most of the work, that way Trick is still fresh for the main event, it very well could be match of the night. That's how great both of these teams are operating and Corbin and Breaker together have been fantastic. Then you have the main event, Ilya Dragunov, Trick Williams, Ilya Dragunov, you know you're getting a tremendous match from him. Trick is the most over person in NXT, one of the top, probably 10 most over people in the entire company right now. So it's a, the rightful main event. It will main event the show. And it's going to be super exciting. Those two matches alone are starting us off pretty damn hot. Lyra and Roxy, that's going to be a banger of a women's match. Two of the best workers in the entire division going at it. Obafemi, Dragon Lee. It may well be the worst match on the entire card, and that's just because Femi's a neophyte still. He's brand new, and it's going to be short. It probably will be pretty decisive with Oba retaining the title. You have Dijak and Joe Gacy, which could completely over-deliver. Gacy, we haven't really seen him reach his potential in NXT, but he can go, and Dijak is always a surprise match of the night, just waiting to happen. And then D'Angelo family out the mud. I don't expect too much greatness out of that, but there's always the chance to surprise when you have a mixed person match and you don't exactly know what the booking is going to be. I think it would be a little bit presumptuous for me to give a pre-show grade in the A range just because NXT, you never exactly know because it is still developmental to a degree. Many of these people uh, competing on this card are developmental talents. It's very tough to kind of go out and say it's gonna be an A show like you might like an old NXT takeover. But I'm gonna go as high as I possibly can without doing that. I'm gonna say B plus as a pre-show expectation grade. And I do think there's a legitimate shot. It gets into A minus territory by the time uh, Vengeance Day wraps up. There's so much on the card that could be fantastic that it could definitely put it over the top. But if you have an NXT show and it winds up in that A minus B plus really, really, really high B range, that's generally a success. It's different from an AEW pay-per-view. It's different from a WWE premium live event, especially one of the big four, like a Royal Rumble or something like that, where you know you have to put what you're getting in context here. Even though WWE is a big company, even though a lot of people watch NXT, it is still a less experienced type of card than you're gonna get anywhere else. But I'm nevertheless looking forward to it. I'm extremely excited for NXT. You guys know I've been a huge proponent of what they're doing down there since Shawn Michaels took over and really, especially since 2.0 ended, and they've moved into this new white and gold era or whatever you wanna call it, they've been putting on great TV and pretty damn good premium live events. And I do think NXT Vengeance Day has an opportunity to be one of those, especially as the last one before Stand and Deliver on WrestleMania weekend. So that was your ultimate preview for NXT Vengeance Day. As soon as that show goes off the air Sunday night, 
We will be back with your third podcast this week in NXT Vengeance Day Instant Analysis. I'm not yet sure whether Vintage Chris Vanini will join the Silver King on that podcast, but I certainly will ask him. And if he's available, he very well might join us. But again, looking forward to that show. Also looking forward to what we have in store for you next week here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. On Tuesday, we'll have your next WWE episode at some point next week. It might be Monday. I'm feeling like Wednesday makes more sense. We're gonna have a special interview episode of Getting Over. I spoke with Gunther, Bronson Reed, Chad Gable, and numerous other WWE superstars while I was in Tampa, St. Petersburg for Royal Rumble weekend. I'm gonna compile those and publish a special episode involving those interviews for you next week. And then Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel, we'll be back to talk NXT and AEW. So that's three episodes in consecutive weeks. We had four episodes, Royal Rumble week. We are getting off to a hot start in 2024. Perhaps nothing hotter than getting over being named the best wrestling podcast for 2023 by the Sports Podcast Awards. I just want to thank them once again for that. It's fantastic. We will talk more about that on Tuesday when Chris rejoins the show. On the way out, allow me to hit you with some reminders. First, that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please leave those five-star ratings and reviews for us on Apple Podcasts on Spotify. You can also leave those five-star ratings. If you do leave a review, of course, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. You can also send us questions and comments for the show via tweet or DM. And I did forget to mention this. We will have pre and post show polls surrounding NXT Vengeance Day posted on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We need your votes because they factor into our instant analysis podcast. Again, Twitter at Getting Overcast. Lastly, please remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up. You can get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling for all the major TV shows and exclusive news posts as well. Again, all of that, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Thank you all so much for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It has been quite a week, I promise you that. And we're just getting started here in 2024. We will be back with you again Sunday night as soon as NXT Vengeance Day goes off the air. Between now and then, I hope you guys have a great start to your weekend. This is the Silver King signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.